Dr. Maisel. Eric, welcome to the Hero's Journey Economy podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. But can you tell the listeners what you're working on right now from a, from a psychologist standpoint, from uh, the research you're doing? Like, what's the latest thing you're working on? Well, quite a few different things. Um, I just had a book come out called The Power of Daily Practice. So one of the things I'm suggesting to folks is the idea that daily practice makes a huge difference in life and that there are certain elements to practice and there are variety of practices that are available and certain characteristic challenges to practice. And the reason I find this so important as a topic is I've been working with creative and performing artists for 30, 35 years now. And what I know is if they start to miss a few days, that's not such a big deal. But if they start to miss a few days, then weeks and months and years and even decades vanish. When we stop doing our real work for some consecutive days, then huge amounts of time vanish. So I want to underline for all folks, for creative folks, but for everybody, that we're unlikely to get to our life purposes, our life purpose choices, if we don't attend to them in a daily way. So that's one thing I'm working on. Another is I'm in an area of psychology called critical psychology or critical psychiatry where we dispute the current paradigms, the current mental health paradigms, and try to shine a bright light on things like, phrases like diagnosing and treating mental disorders. We don't believe these are mental disorders, but rather certain kinds of labels that have been affixed to very normal human attitudes and behaviors. So that's a whole area that interests me. And then most primarily, I've developed over the last years a philosophy of life I called Kirism, K-I-R-I-S-M. And I have a new book out on that called Lighting the Way. So I'm doing lots of writing and lots of thinking on this new philosophy of life. Can, Can we go in reverse order here? I'll admit that I've read a lot of your writing on your blog and several of your books in preparation for this podcast. I have not read Lighting the Way, but what is Kirism? Yeah, obviously, I can only give a few headlines, but I can give a few headlines. It's essentially an updated existentialism. That's the way I would say, that's the way I describe it. I grew up at a time when the French existentialists were popular, Camus and Sartre, and the whole existential tradition was popular. This was in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s even. But existentialism, even though it was big on personal responsibility, which I'm big on also, stopped short at a certain point. It didn't look at how difficult it would be to manifest personal responsibility given our human nature and our psychological ways of being, our defensiveness and all of that. It wasn't very psychologically minded. And it also um, stopped short of describing what sorts of daily practices might go with the ideas of personal responsibility. So for a very long time, really decades and decades, I've been wanting to update existentialism. And that's what this book does. Some of the headline ideas, I'll just give you two headline ideas of many that are in the book. One is the paradigm shift from the idea of seeking meaning to the idea of making meaning. And a second paradigm shift from the idea of the purpose to life or the purpose of life to the idea of life purpose choices that there is no purpose to life, but rather there are the life purpose choices we make. So those two shifts 
the shift from there is a meaning to life to there isn't, and there is a purpose to life to there isn't, yeah. are big shifts. They're really on everybody's mind, but folks don't tend to articulate what I'm talking about the way I've articulated it. And so I think I have some useful things to say to people about how to make those shifts from the one place to the other place. Interested in, in, in getting it is uh, it does change people's perspectives, right? That's what the whole idea is. And, and people, people tend to get what I'm saying instantly, which means that it's been on their mind and it's been almost available to them all along, but they haven't, typically they haven't had the language to speak to themselves about what they already understand. So part of my job is providing a vocabulary and also some important ideas that most folks have never thought about. Let me, let me just share one while we're on this subject before we move on. Sure. And it connects to the, the hero things that matter to you and to matter to me also. Here's a headline about meaning. First of all, meaning is a psychological experience, not something out there like a lost wallet or something to be found. It's a certain kind of psychological experience. So as such, it naturally comes and goes. It's a mental mistake to hope that we'll always experience life as meaningful. That's just a mistake. Mm. We can't because experiences come and go. It would be as ridiculous to expect life to feel meaningful all the time as, it, as to expect it to feel joyful all the time or anything all the time. So that's a big relief when people get that, that life doesn't have to feel meaningful all the time, that it comes and goes. That's its own kind of relief. But here's a headline, and that is, activities in the service of meaning don't necessarily feel meaningful as we do them. And that's a huge point. If you're writing your novel, you also expect it to feel meaningful because here you are, you got to, you got to write it. You're, you're, you've, you've put your butt in the seat. It should feel meaningful. You're making yourself proud. And yet as you write it, it's not feeling meaningful, maybe because it's just a sloggy day. Yeah. And you're not happy with the paragraphs you wrote on that day. So it's a very big learning to realize that many of the things we do in the service of meaning don't feel meaningful as we do them. And so why do we do them? Because they, they match our life purpose choices. So to say that simply, we do things that match our life purpose choices, whether or not we experience them as meaningful. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Okay. And that connects to, you can, I think you can see how that connects to hero ideas because you would expect, well, okay, if you're on your hero's journey or whatever language you want to use, that should feel good because here I am on my hero's journey. No, there's no particular reason why the experience of being on a hero's journey or being heroic ought to feel meaningful. What it should do is make you proud. And that's a different idea. If we're living heroically and by the way, in Kirism, heroism means some simple things. Almost all of Kirist ethics can be reduced to a simple phrase, do the next right thing. That to me is um, one face of contemporary heroism would be to just do the next right thing. We hardly do that often enough. But so let's say you're doing each next right thing. A, that should make you proud you are actually living life the way you ought to be living it. And B, there's no particular reason 
why doing the next right thing is going to feel meaningful. One of the things I think that uh, gets romanticized in, in movies around the hero's journey, like the Rocky, the, the music playing. But if you talk to people that have really gone through one of these transformational experiences, it can be quite an uncomfortable situation. <laughs> the, the whole idea is that you're kind of stretching yourself to do different things or new things a little at a time, it can be very uncomfortable and not that, re you know, it doesn't feel that rewarding yeah. some days. And it, also, you're, you're also some, it's more of a slog, yep. you know, it's. Yep. Uh, and also super slow in coming often. Um, I did a, a series of podcast interviews with folks and I was curious about their experiences with, you know, life purpose and meaning, what have you. One of the outcomes of that series was me learning the following thing. And these were, you know, very mature, professional, well-established folks. Learned the following thing that after the meaning had drained out of something important in their lives, maybe they no longer, no longer felt meaningful to teach or to be in a relationship or even to, to believe in God that no longer felt meaningful. It still took people on average five to six years to make the change they knew all along they were going to have to make, like give up tenure or get the divorce or leave their order or whatever. That's a very long time to be in a certain kind of limbo, a very long time. So I think one of the phrases I try to sell to clients and workshop participants and everybody is simple phrase, sooner rather than later. If you have the deep intuition that you're going to have to make a certain change, try not to have it be five years from now. Try to have it be six months from now or three months from now or as soon as is humanly possible. It's understandable why it takes so long to make these changes, but it, it's, it's sad. It's sad that it takes human beings so long to make the changes they know they ought to be making. What is that, uh, Eric? Is that fear or procrastination or just comfort with, with the way things are? You know, so it seems like some people are uh, unhappy in their life, but it's a comfortable unhappiness rather than maybe uh, stepping into something they don't know. It's almost like the... Lots of different things. One is inertia. One is real consequences. Real consequences. If you get a divorce, suddenly you're, you're if you're the woman, for instance, suddenly you're poorer, almost always. Second, you get a divorce. So you might stay in the marriage for those simple practical reasons. Mm -hmm. um, also change is like an earthquake. You know, if you're changing your belief system, that doesn't feel good at all. And part of you absolutely doesn't want to make that change. To give you that one example from these podcast interviews, I interviewed a woman who was Mother Teresa's right-hand nun. She was a, a nun high up in her order. And at some point she stopped believing in Mother Teresa in her order and in God, but it still took her five years to actually leave the order because it, it, it feels like an earthquake and a betrayal and all kinds of things to make these changes. And we shouldn't underestimate the reality of the consequences. For instance, um, I'm an activist atheist. I've written a book called um, The Atheist Way. And so I, I get, emails from folks who have left their home church and become atheists and we chat about things. And the hardest thing for them is not giving up their belief in God. That, that they did a long time ago and actually relatively easy, easily. It's giving up the companionship of their home church, oh. giving up fellowship. 
and suddenly being alone. There, there aren't really atheist groups to join. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Three, yeah. three atheists make for four opinions. That's an old joke, <laughs> you know. So you do lose some, when you, when you lose your church, you do lose something. So there are lots of reasons why it's hard to make these changes. And, and it's, what I, another curious idea is the idea of taking a step to the side, which is just a way of describing gaining perspective and awareness on what's going on in life. Just a simple idea, rather than mechanically and impulsively going through life to repeatedly, rather to repeatedly take a step to the side and see what's going on. Well, it's hard to take that step to the side when you know unconsciously or consciously or half consciously that what you're going to see is going to require a big change on your part. Mm. It's, it's the Jungian idea of blind spots. You know, we stay blind to what we know because we don't really want to deal with the consequences of what we know. There's also the element that if you do something like this, if you do take an action, it's now, it's something you own. As opposed to, I, I talk to a lot of people in their lives, they might be unhappy, but the story they tell themselves is, is it's a situation of happenstance. Yep. And, that, and that moving out of that, sta- that position and taking ownership of the next thing is a lot more scary than we'd all like to admit. It, it's, there's a comfortableness in saying, um, the victim phrase is maybe overused, but you know, I'm yep. in this spot because of a lot of different things that, that are, were totally out of my control. And if I was to kind of change that, then it would be my fault for whatever happens after that. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, I told you, I mentioned I was in the critical psychiatry, critical psychology area. One of the difficulties in changing the paradigm around mental disorders is that so many people, so many consumers want to buy the paradigm. They want to act like they have this thing called depression that a pill can solve, even though what's going on is they hate their job as if a pill could do anything for that. But they, they buy the label because it, as just as you say, it removes a certain level of responsibility. Well, they've, they've caught this mental flu, the depression, so of course it's not their fault. And they don't really have to think about leaving their job or this or that. They just need to remember to take their antidepressants. So th- there's something very similar there. There's a, there's a way, there's a colluding way yeah. The same way, I'm also, I didn't mention, but I also write in the area of authoritarians and the family. And I've done books on this and, and I'm interested in what's called the authoritarian personality, which in the literature is broken down into two groups, authoritarian leaders and authoritarian followers. And there too, for authoritarian followers, we have this same refusal to take personal responsibility for what's going on. This sheepish or sheep-like adherence to um, a fascist ruler or, or in the case of families, to the mother or father who's being cruel and punishing and still maintaining allegiance to that person, even in the face of a clear understanding that you're being harmed in that family. Yep. So there are lots of, different pla- lots of different areas where we as a species refuse to take personal responsibility for what's going on. Oh, and if I may, just I want to piggyback one other thing, and that is, you know, and your reader, your listeners know, that the, the number one phobia in the world is not fear of flying or fear of snakes or fear of whatever, bridges or 
spiders, it's fear of public speaking. And that, that helps us when, we, when you realize that, helps you understand how difficult it is for people to stand up and speak. So since you are and I am interested in, the, in ideas of heroism, how difficult must it be to be an everyday hero if it is so difficult to even just stand up and speak? That's true. I've, uh, you know, I've heard that thing about speaking and I've, I've taken uh, Dale Carnegie's speaking class and I've seen some transformational people going from puking on the first night to being yep. you know, very comfortable afterwards. And, and the big thing at, at the time, I took it a while ago when nuclear threat was maybe more on people's minds, yep. but it was actually on, in those surveys, getting up in front of people was higher than nuclear threat, which seemed like a very, yeah. That's how profound it is. And, and that's, why it's so, that's why so many people follow along, you know, talking about heroism. The flip side of heroism is, you know, herd mentality and going along to get along. There's a great social psychological experiment. I'm sure you know it. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the line experiment. It's known as the line experiment where a subject is in a room with other supposed subjects, but all the other subjects are really confederates of the experimenter. And so the experimenter shows two lines on a, you know, on a picture. And one line is maybe two and a half times the length of the other. And he asks the group, are these lines of the same length or different lengths? <laughs> Any, anybody with eyes knows, knows what's the truth there. So the setup of the experiment is all the Confederates say one after another, the lines of, of the, wow, they look of the same length to me. So when it comes to the subject's time, what is the subject going to say? The subject is going to have to stand up on his own two feet to say, nope, I don't agree with anybody in this room. Virtually no subjects in these experiments to the 90 plus percent level ever say the lines are of different length. They always agree with everybody else. They're cowed into believing, or they're cowed into saying that these lines are of the same length. Hmm. It's actually quite amazing that people are so cowardly. That's not something we talk about too much, that, that, we're so, that we can be manipulated so easily. I mean, we look at, uh, historically, we look at situations like Hitler's rise and kind of shrug it off like that could never happen again, but it's very likely to happen again based on- Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the veneer of civilization is paper thin. <laughs> I remember someone saying uh, when the fall of Russia happened and they really started to make revolutionary changes there from an economic standpoint and leadership. And there was a lot of pushback from the people there in, inside Russia that weren't having a very good life. But the synopsis was, that they were much more comfortable with the certainty of the old time than they were about what, what the uncertain future had. And they, were much, and they were much more content with maybe waiting in a line for food and being told what to do than to maybe open up their own food store you know, or, or, do, yeah. or, or grow their own food. And it was, or at the simplest level, having, having a roof over their head. Yeah, it almost goes back yeah. to that saying, uh, people get the leaders they deserve. Right. You know, I love, this is, this just pops into my head, but I, I just love the inanity of our leaders saying they don't want socialism, but they're also patriots. There's no more socialistic <laughs> uh, organization on the face of the, of the earth than the military, where everything is provided for you 24 hours a day. You know, it's just funny that we don't recognize 
that the socialistic nature of our uh, the way we set up our military, the way yeah. all militaries are set up. <laughs> a lot of it has to do with the words we use too, right? Exactly. And what we label things, you know, like uh, your description of critical psychiatry. You're like the third person this month who has come on a, on my podcast and kind of said, you know, all the words and diagnosis we're we're using for mental health are. Uh, and they've said it in varying degrees. A lot of yeah. them are just saying it's all crap to, to this has to be investigated a little bit more because it, some of these situations are just temporary feelings people have. And then they, you label a, a diagnosis and then they end up embracing that for the rest of their life. And it, exactly. it's, uh, um, it, I, and I'm no expert in this, but this definitely has one of those feelings that we may look back at what we're doing now with medical, a mental diagnosis with uh, great scrutiny in the future, <laughs> you know, where it, it may be one of those things where, uh, what is it, Some, uh, in every era of time, most of the scientists of that era felt very confident they knew how the world worked. And, uh, and I think that's one where people feel well, very comfortable. Yeah, this isn't, that's right, this isn't a lack of understanding. This is pure deceit. Oh, you think so? It's just- Oh, absolutely, because, absolutely, because th there's no, mental health professional who hasn't encountered the evidence that speaks to how this diagnosing on the basis of symptom pictures is completely illegitimate and there isn't a shred of medical activity going on here. There isn't a single mental health professional who doesn't understand the arguments. They've just come down on the side of, so to speak, uh, professionalism and um, the status quo. Right. Just, just for just just to line their own pockets. And as you know, every second ad nowadays on TV and everywhere is pharmaceutical companies, right? Everything's a disorder. Everything's treatable. Everything has a drug associated with it. Pharmaceutical companies are so powerful that um, that's, that's the main reason why this deceitful paradigm can't be de deconstructed really, is that the forces aligned against it are just too powerful. Because the other side of that argument is if you can never shake off some of these diagnoses or people like Oprah Winfrey or you know, you know, people that went through, it, it's almost saying to people, you can't have a horrible event or ever feel blue in your life because you're never going to come through it. And, and the reality is... Let me, let me interrupt you and, and add, sure. add a piece to the conversation because it's complicated. Yeah. It may be the case that something that you are experiencing will never go away because it's a feature of your original personality. Psychology and psychiatry does not talk about the idea of original personality. Let me back up a minute and explain what I mean. I have a vision of personality as personality being comprised of three elements or original personality, how we come into the world. Everybody who's had you know, kittens or puppies or kids knows that every creature comes into the world already itself. Then there's what I called formed personality. That's, that's the way we stiffen over time into our kind of observable, repetitive personality. And then there's what I call available personality, our remaining freedom to be the person that we would like to be. Well, circling back to original personality, what if you're born sadder than the next person? Who knows that that can't be the case? Well, then you have a lifelong challenge that at some point is gonna be called clinical depression 
but you still have that whatever it's called you still have this lifelong challenge that you may never be able to fully overcome so you may have to live with sadness so that's then what you do if a version of heroism there would be to live your life purposes while sad right now who wants to hear that there's nobody who wants to hear that but that may be the case for a lot of people that we have to go about our business heroically living our life purposes while sad or while anxious or while this or while that because those are features of our original personality I once was struggling with, uh, and I still do, with some anxiety. And uh, a, a, one person said to me, a professional said, yeah, this isn't probably something at your age, you're probably going to be able to shake. <laughs> you know? And they said, so it's on the bus with you. And your job is to you know, manage. You know? <laughs> so I was like, okay. I, I, it was almost like, they're, they're like, you're not going to go crazy, but you're not going to be able to shake this. And you know what? You're, you're going to have to manage it. And we'll give you some things that, uh, some, some help on how to manage it, you know, non-drug. You know, like exactly, yeah, non-drug, exactly. non-drug tools, and, and yep, yeah, and I, I did a what? book called Mastering Creative Anxiety, and in it I have twenty categories of things to do if you have to live with anxiety. So there are plenty of things to try. Trying things is not the same as eventually eliminating anxiety. That ain't going to happen. No, no, and you know what? That advice to me was. Like, yep. I think there's a feeling that it's going to get worse because I don't know. I just had that feeling like this seemed, you know, could oh, be because it you know? can and actually it can. If, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. And so I was nervous that this thing was, I'm going to lose all containment on this thing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, but this mm-hmm. person said, eh, you're probably not going to lie. You know, you seem pretty okay. And, and they were like, but you're never going to kick this thing. You're just not. If you've been, you know, but we'll give you some tools. But, you know, because the whole idea is to your point, uh, this will be, you might have this and you're just going to have to yep. work through And you're right. I do kind of consider it a heroic effort to kind of like, okay, I'm That's not, right. I'm feeling a little anxious today. I've got to, I got to buckle down. And I, you know, exactly. That, that's, yeah. that's everyday heroism to me to deal with these lifelong challenges that may be built into our system. By the way, to circle back all the way around to where we started, I mentioned that just had a book come out, The Power of Daily Practice to manage things like sadness, despair, anxiety, our addictive tendencies, our obsessions, our this, our that, we really want to try to attend to them in a daily way. If we try to attend to them super intermittently, we're not really attending to them. We aren't really taking care of them. It's like in 12-step recovery programs, the idea of one day at a time, and first things first, Anybody in recovery knows they can't forget about their recovery practice for six months or something. You can't, you don't dare forget about the things you need to do in a daily way. It's just too dangerous. It's too likely that this powerful thing that wants to return will return. So once we've identified something that is really bothersome to us, like um, free floating anxiety or sadness or whatever, if we can, if we want to engage in this everyday heroism, that means tackling the thing every single day. Yeah, that's a, You know what? That's another theme that's on this podcast quite a bit, and it's also on some like uh, Scott Adams. Uh, the he's the author of Dilbert, but he also speaks on other things, and he's he's a big proponent of what he that daily habits he calls systems. He said that if you have a system each day, 
um, you know, the whole idea yep. of either improving a little each day, you know, if you improve 1% yep. each day, you're not 365% better at the end of the year, it, it builds on itself. Even Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian said, you know, when he wrote every day, he put a big X on the calendar and he never wanted to have a gap. And that was his big yep. thing, like never have a gap. He felt, he felt, and I think a lot of people that do these daily practices feel that uh, it's almost like a batter in batting practice that they take it every day, whether they, you know, whether they're playing or not, but you get into a groove and that groove is important. And that when you fall off to your point, when you fall off that groove, it, the days can fall into weeks and months pretty quickly. Um, yep. And just one thing to piggyback on that, the, the Seinfeld example, he, he was, so to speak, merely showing up. That was sufficient. He was celebrating showing up. If he did a lot of work, he did a lot of work. He did a little work, he did a little work. And that's exactly right. The showing up is so important. The Dilbert example is a tiny bit different because there was built in the notion of progress that over 365 days, you've, you've gotten somewhere or you've built something up. Or, but I, I like to make it clear to clients and, and folks in workshops and what have you, that we have to be careful about wanting our daily progress, our daily practice to feel like we're making progress. Mm. Because many, many times it, we will not be making progress. And it's still the showing up that's so important. On a given day, you may write seven words and take nine words out. You may, you may not be able to, you may not legitimately be able to say, wow, I made progress today. But you can still celebrate having shown up on that day. We have to be careful about this progress word because it's built into the American character. The transcendentalists of the 1700s and 1800s wrote a lot about progress. They felt it was a particularly American thing. They loved the image of the upward spiral. They thought we should always be going forward and up and this and that. And so we've got this deeply ingrained in our system that we're always supposed to be making progress. And it would be lovely to let go of that idea and circle back around to the idea of showing up as opposed to making progress. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I've heard it uh, phrased a little bit different, but along the same lines that... Uh, if you set up a goal to do something, you know, to be somewhere, let, let, let's say I, I set up a goal to lose maybe, you know, 30 or 40 pounds, like a fairly, fairly aggressive. And it's, yep. and it's, it would take over a year to do. You, you think that's good, but every day you're living in the gap. You're living in this want. What I've heard a lot of people say is you should just go to the gym every day. To your point. Or eat less every day. <laughs> yeah. But like, just, just do a little something every day don't think about the goal that the goal will take care of itself. But if you just focus on the goal, it becomes yep. a drudgery because, you yeah. know, and that's, to, that's today, a great example. Yeah. That's a great example because of the, because we know that in, in weight loss, we hit plateaus. Our body just seems to not want to lose weight for a while. So if, if for seven consecutive days, we get, we've done everything right and we get on the scale and we haven't lost any weight, that's so demoralizing. So that's, that's, that's another, I mean, that's just re-saying what you're saying, that sticking to the program is the thing, irrespective of the results. Now, if, if over time we're really not getting the results we need to get, then we obviously have to re-examine the program. But we have to give these programs a chance. Yeah. In working with clients, that's one of the biggest things that we have to get agreement on is whatever thing we've just agreed upon, can we agree that you're going to stick with it for X amount of time, meaning two weeks or a month or 
some time different from just two days. Hey, is there and whatever is whatever is we've agreed to? Can we can we stick with it for a while, please? Is there a is there a time that you normally recommend people to stick to things? Is it two weeks or? It actually is something like two weeks because I think that well, whenever you set up an agreement with a new client, neither neither the client nor the coach can know if you've set it up exactly correctly. So let's say it's a it's a writer who who is now resuming her novel and she's agreed that she's going to write for twenty minutes every day. We don't know if that's exactly right. We don't know if it should be 40 minutes or if it should be every other day or who knows what. So I do think that something like two weeks is, is, is a decent amount of time to have learned enough to know if the thing we set in place is the right thing. Yeah, I was reading and I'm not sure which meditation app it was and I don't know the time, so I don't know the details on this, but I'll give you what I read. One of the advantages of these meditation apps on people's phones is uh, is they can look at the metadata around that, like when people are doing it and how long they're doing it and how consistent they are. Developers or presidents of the company was, was doing a TED talk and they actually narrowed it down to like, if they could get someone to consistently meditate for X amount of time each day and get to a certain point, they'd be lifetime meditators. Anything like one day less than that. <laughs> and it's like, no, the whole thing was how do you nurture someone along and, and the idea is what they were trying to put some encouragement on, but they could, they could actually just from the wisdom of the metadata and the, the wisdom of observation of the crowd, they could figure out when, some, when, the, when they were likely to stay in the groove and when they were likely to like yeah. fall out of the groove. And I thought but that was know, interesting. I, I, the, the part I would dispute there is, is the, for the rest of time, because how yeah. long has the app been around and what they right. only know, <laughs> they only have data on X amount of time. The, the thing, and this is what's known in the recovery movement. You could, you can never act like you've settled something for all time. Right. We have to, we have to keep remembering how easy it is to slip off the wagon or, stop the diet or stop the exercise or stop the novel or stop this or stop that to be sure we don't have to be in a negative space around the thing i just said we just have to maintain awareness that we we have to keep showing up we have to keep we keep, have to keep holding the intention and we have to keep aligning our thoughts with that intention and we have to keep aligning our behaviors with that intention until the end of time joseph campbell who wrote the hero's journey he spoke a little bit on, on this daily practice and his feeling was you should be doing something like this because if you're not, then you fall into the systems of the world. So if you're, if you're, not, if you're, yep. not, if you're not watching what you're eating, you're going to end up eating a lot of fast food. Like it's the other, if you don't create That's your right. own, if you don't create your own practice, someone's going to create one for you and it's not going to be good. And it was an interesting perspective he's like you got to create your own system because the world systems aren't you know don't have your best interests at heart sometimes and so that's right and and also because we we're accustomed to throwing away time very easily how do we do that nowadays you know we check our email one more time or we play some game on on the on the computer or something like that we've really come to scorn small increments of time 10 minutes here 20 minutes there we just throw them right away and those could be daily practices, a 20-minute practice of some sort, even though that's only 20 minutes, could be a life-changing practice if it were a, I don't know, a health practice or a personality upgrade practice or a meaning-making practice or some other kind of practice. These things don't take hours and hours and hours. 
if we do something really valuable for even a few minutes, that's so, that's so much better than throwing those 10 minutes away. You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned that just personally, I've, I recently made a list of things I could do if I have 15 or less minutes in the day. That's a great list. Because I found, you're right, yep. it wasn't like I was doing anything bad, but I wasn't doing anything productive. I was usually probably looking at the news on the internet. It didn't feel like I was wasting my time because it doesn't feel like you're wasting your time. But I'm like, you know what? I've got to figure out what to do in these gaps because I'll have yeah. a, you know, when this wraps up, I'll have 15 minutes before my next thing. And I should be doing something along to, to fill in that gap. Use that curious language of doing the next right thing. In any particular gap, the next right thing might be to relax or it might be to do some daily practice. That is, it's always contextual. There shouldn't be a should there like, oh, I've got to make use of every single minute, 24 hours a day. There isn't that should. It's just, what is the right next thing to do? Is it to take a nice break, take a hot shower, or to do something, um, so to speak, more productive? It's a kind of a continual, for me, the day is kind of a continual negotiation with the self around what's, what's the next right thing or appropriate thing to do. In the hero's journey, there's this call to action. So when you have clients come to you, that is actually maybe their call. They're saying, hey, yeah. I'm so, this isn't working. Whatever's, whatever's supposed to be happening in my life isn't happening. And I'm coming to you because I need a perspective or, and that's actually their call, but not everyone comes to you. Not everyone goes to, yep. and, and Joseph Campbell said is the call to action. Then he said, you know, but most people don't respond to it. <laughs> His thing is most people refuse the call. And even um, he, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Star Wars, but George Lucas, the director of Star Wars actually studied under Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. and, and that whole story is the hero's story. He, he like went verbatim almost scene sure. by scene into it. And there's this one scene where Luke Skywalker, he gets invited into this adventure to save this princess. And even like in the prior scene, he was complaining that he was bored on this planet because he was on a farm and he wanted to see action. And then they, this person comes and says, okay, you got to help me save this princess. And he's like, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know? And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it until, you know, he goes back home and his, his family's been, his, uh, his aunt and uncle have been killed. And, and he's like, well, you know, I've got nothing else to lose. I guess in that call, you have people that have just kind of said, uh, I'm sure. lost and admitted. Well, let me, I, I think I can, I think I can respond to what you're saying sort of sideways. Yeah. And the question you're asking is sort of, can all human beings progress? <laughs> <laughs> or, and, yeah, or, or can they snap out of this? Or can, can they you know, snap out of it? And the answer is no. In my mind, the answer is no. I would, I would never hold the belief that the whole species could snap out of it, which is why, which is, and that's one of the, the tenets of existentialism and updated existentialism is that we're alone, engaged in our absurd rebellion alone, and it's our individual responsibility to be the person we intend to be while everybody else isn't being the person they ought to be. So the short answer to your really hope is nope. <laughs> nope. Only a small percentage. I have no idea what the number is. Let's pick a number. 1% or a fraction of 1% of the human species will do the stuff we want them to do. We'll step to the plate. But those are the people who make a difference. So we're, we, we can keep speaking to those, that 1% and let the other 99% do whatever they're going to do. Speak to the 1%, 1%, whether it's the scientists or the artists or the 
the politicians or the military to the, the you know the Eisenhowers or the the Churchills, whoever it is, we need those people to step to the plate and we have to keep supporting them and having hopes for them because I do not believe that the whole species can meet the call. I'd like to think it's better than 1%. I know Joseph Campbell said it wasn't many people. I don't think he ever said it's a percentage, but he was like, hey, most don't. It's, it's few that do. That even, you know, that- it's let, me give you another, let me give you another kind of example of how few um, you know the famous Stanley Milgram experiment, probably the um, shocking the learner experiment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. very familiar. So, so the setup of that experiment was a simple one, where an experimenter said to a subject, "That guy on the other side of the screen is supposed to learn stuff. If he doesn't learn it well, shock him. Give him a lot of electric shock." Yeah. Outcome across cultures, across genders, everywhere, same outcome. Virtually a hundred percent of people will shock that person on the other side for no other reason that the experimenter is saying, do it. 100% virtually in the 90s. That doesn't speak very well to our species or about, that doesn't speak very well about our species. But I think that's the truth of the matter, that people are ready to stand in that shocking place, that punishing place way too easily. So no, I don't have hope for the whole species in the sense of everybody, suddenly becoming the small hero they we would love them to become but i do have hope for the one percent i do have hope in the one percent that there will always be folks who are trying and i want to support them and uh, i have my fingers crossed for us because of them yeah that's what this podcast is all about is the people that are interested or you know uh, trying to do that and and looking at examples of you know you can't hack your way through these things uh you know i think some people want to take a pill or, or do something. And yep. to your point, whatever you're taking on, whether it's weight loss, whether it's, you know, changing a career, um, getting out of a, re a long-term relationship or something, they're very hard. Yep. And, I, and at least some of the things that I've been reading and researching is that these, sometimes it's not even that hard. It's just very uncomfortable. Yep. And, and we live, you know, we live, we go from air conditioning to the car to air conditioning the house and, and our, our comfort our comfort bar yep. is very high. You know, it's like the Wi-Fi exactly. goes out for a couple, you know, the Wi-Fi goes out for a couple minutes. And, you yep. know, have you ever seen when Wi-Fi goes out on an airplane? People yep. start getting really upset. And it's like, wait a yep. minute. I have an exercise in one of my books, uh, which is the exercise is to try to tolerate a difficult thought for 10 consecutive seconds. Like it's that. very hard to do. If the difficult thought is, I really need a divorce or I really need to change careers, something actual, some really difficult thought, or my father's not okay, or my mother's not okay, or some other kind of difficult thought. It is so hard to tolerate that thought. If people act, if, you know, if our schools were completely different and actually educated, it would be lovely to have children learn to tolerate things that are hard to think about. That'd yeah. be, that'd be an amazing learning. We, we would, we, there, we would really start to advance as a species if human beings could tolerate difficult thoughts. Can we talk a little bit more about the daily practice? Like in some of my daily practices, I, I try and make them frictionless. And what I mean by that is when I, when I go to the gym in the morning, I get up probably what a lot of people would think is really early, but I like have the clothes all set, right? So I yep. just grab them and get dressed. I am in the gym working out before I've even had to have a thought about 
maybe I shouldn't be doing this today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I'm, I'm a big believer in that, um, especially for creative folks who are trying to get their creative work done because I kind of demand that clients who are creative have a morning creativity practice that they get to their creativity, that get to their work first thing. If it were you, I would even, you know, arm wrestle you about the gym as opposed to writing your novel, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, with creative folks, there are many reasons for it. One is you get to make use of your sleep thinking. If you turn to your creative work first thing, you get to make use of what your brain's been working on during the night, which is a very big deal. But just to, just to cut to the chase, I absolutely believe in that kind of frictionless daily practice where the coffee's already made, and where you try to sort of not really wake up, you sort of try to stay in that dreamy trance-like place because the second you turn to the new day, to thoughts about what has to happen today or whether you want bran flakes for breakfast or a bagel or what have you, the second you turn to that place, you can't really get to your creativity practice. Your head's gonna be now on the day and it's gonna be very difficult to get any creative work done that day. You're saying something that a lot of other creatives, Julian Cameron, there's just a lot of people saying that same, do it when you're groggy, do it in the morning, get it done. Don't, and, and I guess for the person who, the creative person that might have the luxury of having all day, don't put it off because it's going to be that much harder later on to, right. to sit down. And, right? and by the, by the way, um, just since you brought up Julia Cameron, I have to deal with kind of the aftermath or consequences of all the millions of people who have done her morning pages for 30 years now and have never written their real book. So, um, you, you're not on her uh, bandwagon there. <laughs> Is, you know, no, I'm, you, not, I'm oh. not on her bandwagon oh, in the sense you, that morning pages don't have to be morning pages. Okay. It's not that I'm against the idea of journaling. God knows I'm not against that idea. I've written whole books on the value of journaling. It's, it's, it's that so many people have spent all their good words on their morning pages and have never gotten their book done. So this is about deciding what your daily practice is really about. If it's about journaling and you're not working on a book, more power to you. But if you've been trying to write your book for 20 years and you're still journaling in the morning, you know, I, I would really hope that you could switch your mind about that and let your daily, your morning creativity practice be about writing your book and not about morning pages. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if, if someone has a mission, you're thinking that they, it should be the first thing they do in the morning? Yep. Okay. That's, that's good. Uh, I'm hearing that more and more. It's funny. Well, the, you know, and, if, you, if I type in your name, if you go to, hey, people that have liked your books, just so you know, Julia Cameron's mm. books also come up. So, oh, of so course. You're in, well, yeah, you're in that Julia same, Cameron, yeah. The Artist's Way and my first book in this area came out from the, from the same publisher in the same season. So uh, we've been on this journey together and we just spoke together at a conference and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, we're, <laughs> we've, been, we've been down this road together for a very long time. So I, there's nothing that I essentially object to about what she's saying. It's just the, the way folks have made use of her morning pages has actually negatively affected them often. Yeah, they've they've spent all their uh, battery power on yep. on something. Their that word. I, yeah, yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yep. What other things would you, prov uh, from an advice standpoint, on the daily practice of 
what are the things around that daily practice? There, there are lots. Of, there are lots of challenges to daily practice. A third of the book is devoted to challenges to daily practice. Um, so you know, there are many things to talk about. We may not have the skill set that we need, so we may have to we may have to live with learning a skill in order for our daily practice to really work and, and learning that skill. Maybe the daily practice that comes before the daily practice that we really want. I'll give you a simple example of that when Van Gogh was one, in one of his existential extremities after he was fired from being a pastor and didn't know what to do next and was about to commit suicide and then he remembered he liked painting. Everybody else would have just started painting. That's what people do, even though they may not have had the skills necessary to do the painting they had in mind to do. He though was more honest than that. And he said to himself, I can envision the paintings I want to make, but I don't, I don't have the skill set to make them. Mm. So he spent a whole year just making, just making gestures, just trying to learn the kinds of strokes that it would allow him to capture poplars quickly or evergreens quickly or elms quickly. So he spent a whole year preparing himself for his missionary painting work. So that's an, it's really an interesting idea that, that we may have to work on something before we work on the thing we actually want to work on. We may have that, to work on a skill set. Now the morning thing is even harder. <laughs> now it's made, even harder yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and less yeah. meaningful too. I mean, you can right. see that if, you, if the thing you have to work on is uh, chord sequences, oh my God, or I don't know, learning Russian vocabulary or because you really want to read Dostoevsky in the original or whatever, how sloggy is that going to be? Very sloggy. It, that's interesting. I don't know if a lot of people take that step uh, to, uh, <laughs> to, kind of, to kind of say, okay, I'm not even ready to start what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm going to spend a year or two. That is not heroic. I, that strikes yeah. me as the kind of everyday heroism we've been talking about sort of sideways. That's a, that's a piece of everyday heroism to say, I really, really want to do this and I can't yet. I'm going to have to do the preliminary stuff. Oh my God, that's what I have to do next. Yeah, that's really walking towards a barking dog. That's, you know, because that's, that's not going to be, that's not going to be fun. Uh, I guess that's the whole thing about being uncomfortable. And I think that's the other thing is I think Let some me just people... say one thing about even, it, it won't be fun. And if you can celebrate what you did on that day, that's going to help. People yeah. don't celebrate enough. And I don't mean, you know, break open the 50-year-old the 50 scotch. I mean, just have a certain conversation with yourself, a celebratory conversation about, wow, I did that today. That was yeah. pretty amazing. I'm really amazed I did that today. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be to another person. It could just, it's just internally, you're just acknowledging that that was really hard to do. That's exactly right, yeah. internally. The hero's journey, I, I know you've written a lot about it. Are you on board with the idea or do you feel like it's been maybe... I don't believe in the hero's journey at all. Okay. I believe in heroism, but not in this thing with, with quotation marks, the hero's journey which has all of these particular specifics about, you know, as you were saying, the call or the wise mentor or the, and also the happy ending, so often the happy ending. I think these are, uh, the hero's journey is a device used by people wanting to manipulate us to manipulate us. Someone once said, you know, Walt Disney was the most dangerous man in America. And I understand where that, where that sentiment was coming from because we can be seduced by the ways that the hero's journey gets into us somewhere. It affects us somewhere in a positive way. When we see it on the screen, it affects us in a positive way. 
but it's so it's so formulaic and untruthful basically uh, you know i guess i guess i have to be okay with the action movies i love and you know being seduced by the hero's journey i guess i have to be okay with that because you know if if i'm in the mood for the equalizer or whatever i'm in the mood for the equalizer or whatever right. or some other you know hero's journey but basically i'm not for it basically i'm for a kind of everyday heroism that doesn't mirror or mimic the hero's journey at all well, well you know here's i have a different perspective I, i'm I, i'm with you on some of this but i also think that if you take a look at what people have to do that change their life forget the movies and the video games and the and the novels but what people have to do in their life they do have to if if they're really unhappy they do have to snap out of it and and they have to kind of get an idea of where they are and yes. i think that and they have to step out of their comfort to go in something very uncomfortable. So from a mythological standpoint, that's what Joseph Campbell was acknowledging in that monomyth that, you know, there's people in everyday life that get pulled, you know, they hear something, you know, for whatever reason, they get called into something, they get pulled into a very uncomfortable situation where they're going to be tested and they're going to grow. But the whole idea, I think what, where it's been hijacked is, I don't think Joseph Campbell ever thought it was uh, to get gold or riches or the girl or the happy ending. It was more of a spiritual transformation that, yep. you know, at the end of Rocky, it's that he feels mentally worthy enough to have a, a nice uh, life partner, you know, like he, at the end of the fight, he's calling out for a girl. Now, granted, he's getting the girl, but at the for the whole movie, he didn't really feel like he was worthy of having her. And it was almost like a mental journey that he had to go on that he's like, you know, this was my lot in life. I decided to be a boxer. Maybe it was a total accident. And I think it was like, you know what? I was not a bad boxer and I'm not maybe a bad guy, you know? Sure. I, 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 think mm -hmm. in, I think in real life, some of those things that are in the monomyth of the hero's journey, to your point, like most people don't answer the call. It's, it's maybe one of the reasons I think is because they're getting it other places or seeing it in movies and they're getting maybe the buzz watching a video game or playing a video game and not maybe really assessing but where they you, are. You know, if we, we could go on with this, I think, and maybe, you know, dispute particular elements because one would want Rocky to grow up without the heavyweight champion deciding to pick some Schlemiel as his next opponent. That is, it's the heavyweight champion who, who provides the call. Yes. And without it, Rocky is going to be a bone breaker till the end of his days or something. Correct. So in, in, the, in the myth, something from outside has to trigger this growth or heroism. And that annoys me. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Like not, not to go down the Rocky path, but in the second movie or the third movie, it's, it's, I think it's a, it, he feels all is lost and he says something's got to change. But you're right. In the first movie, if that doesn't happen, um, you're right. That's He's, right. He's, That's he's right. A, he's so, an enforcer you know, we for could, the whole we thing. Could, but... We could parse these and discuss these. I, I'm yeah. not so adamantly against it as, as I seem, and you're probably not as adamantly for it. As... No, no, I'm not. I'm not really for it in the movies <laughs> because I think it, I think it distracts people from take. I think, That's right. I think, I think in a way it, it taps into that serotonin that we'd all like from actually doing it ourselves. We're doing it in these. We're doing it vicariously through, and you know, and when VR comes, you know, we're gonna really do it and it's all going to be fake you know so so uh, i kind of worry that people aren't maybe snapping out of their own life um that's so, exactly yeah. right 
This has been very interesting to talk to you. I wasn't sure where it was going to go, but I, I, I read a lot of your writing. I'm going to definitely read your next book, uh, Lighting the Way. I, I can't wait to, to get that and to see uh, the advice there. If people want to find you on the internet. Well, the, the most straightforward place is my site, which is myname.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com, ericmazel.com. That's the place to go. And I would recommend the two recent books, Lighting the Way is Out and Power of Daily Practice is Out. So those two books are available on Amazon and the other places where folks shop. But the main way to be in touch is to come visit me. And you can also just drop me an email at any time to ericmazel at hotmail.com. One last question I had for you. Uh, You're definitely the most prolific writer we've had on this podcast. What do you have? I think over 50 books, correct? I look at your website and you're writing rich, interesting articles almost every day. And and I know everyone has an individual writing practice. What's yours? Because you seem to be able to crank, you know, I know you've tapped into that creative element in in your world, but what's your practice? Because you seem to be able to, you crank out quality work and I'm just sort of like how many hours you know it's not so much hours this is it's going to sound repetitive and it's going to go in one ear and out the other ear but if you do something every single day it accumulates if you do 500 words a day which is just about a page and a half that's 50,000 words every hundred days that's two books a year yeah if you were to do it every day. So I can tell you my daily practice, I get up at 5 a.m. and, and go, go to work, I go right. Yeah. And I try not to really look up from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's sort of my work day. And of course I look up and I have to have a little breakfast and this, that, and the other thing. But basically that's my practice is to, is to be doing my real work from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. It's, it's the act of being there every day that causes the things to accumulate. Yeah, uh, Stephen Pressfield says the same thing, right? Show up, sit down. And, Every day. Yeah, and it just, it gets easier. And, and you start to, just like an athlete building a muscle, you're building kind of this tapping into this, the ether and, of, and not, of creativity. I may, have, I may have said this already, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but it's not discipline, it's more devotion. It's more that I'm on a mission and I've been on this mission since I think I was five or six years old. And that's so much around me just seems like humbug. And for some reason, I've been wanting to have you know, been the little kid in the crowd of, in the, uh, the, the naked emperor story. Yeah. Been that little kid forever. I just keep wanting to point a finger at this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> so, so I've been on this mission for a very long time, and I'm still on that mission. We appreciate it, because I think it's, uh, you're that 1% that you talked about. You're out there yep. fighting the good fight and, and hoping to snap people out of their, their uh, sleepwalking. Yep. Eric, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. We, uh, this has been a great conversation and look forward to reading your new book. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. 